Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tane. Today, the votes are in, the seats are sorted. So what deal will define the shape of the next government? Now we can get cracking with it and continue to accelerate those conversations, which will be really important. We uh, have to treat it with urgency and uh, deal with the negotiations as fast as we possibly can, whilst not being foolish about it. We will take a look at the huge shift in the Māori seats and then a fascinating interview you won't hear anywhere else. A Māori leader with an extraordinary link to the Palestinian cause. Within this realm, judgments are being made around what it is to be human, what it is to be normal, what it is to you know, organise yourself in a, in a political way. We'll have that interview for you shortly, but we begin this morning with the final results from the general election. Subject to recounts and several tight electorates, and provided it doesn't work with the Greens or Labour, National will need the support of two support parties to command a majority and form a government. So what's it going to mean for negotiations with ACT in New Zealand first? Late yesterday, I spoke to National Party campaign manager Chris Bishop, and I began by asking for his reaction to the results. Look, we're overall pretty happy. Uh, obviously, we, you know, we won the election, um, and we just need to you know, form government with ACT and New Zealand first now. Uh, but if you think about where we were in 2020, uh, one of the worst results for national in history, uh, 2023 feels pretty good. Uh, and so we just got to get that government together over the next few days and go forward from there. But look, the country sent a very clear message that they wanted change uh, and uh, they have delivered that change. Uh, and we've just got to form that government now. So looking at your final party vote tally, you're sitting at just over 38%. As you say, the largest party but the second lowest result for National in the last 20 years. Why do you think that is? Well, obviously, you've got a, a strong ACT party on our right. They got around 9% uh, of the vote. So if you go 38 and 9, that's uh, 47. Uh, it's good numbers. Uh, and you throw New Zealand First into the mix there as well. On the centre-right, uh, you know, with around 6%, that's, you know, well over 50 for the centre-centre-right block of parties. So very clear, decisive uh, mandate for change mm. delivered by the New Zealand people. And MMP elections are always close, by definition. Uh, they're always going to be close. The system is, uh, is designed like that. Uh, we would like to be higher than 38, of course. Uh, the Labor Party would like to be higher than, you know, 27%. Uh, the Greens would like to be higher than, than what they got. Everyone mm. wants more votes. You always want that. That's why we're in politics and why we're ultimately going for Parliament. But, you know, 38, uh, compared to where we were in 2020, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty good. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in this, though, because, you know, that, that number is you know, quite different to the numbers that John Key enjoyed you know, during his time in, in government. Why do you think so many voters who might have in the past supported National chose to support ACT or, indeed, New Zealand First instead? Well, look, I think ultimately the political commentators will have their say on that, and no doubt there's be political scientists... What, what's your say? ..some of the more informed members of the journalistic community. Well, I, I think, uh, you know... David Seymour is a, is a strong and decisive voice uh, for the ACT Party. He's, you know, rebuilt the ACT Party after some uh, pretty troubling times in the uh, early 2010s, and uh, particularly during the, the COVID uh, period, he was a, you know, a, a very clear and striking voice, and uh, he's obviously managed mm. to build on that uh, momentum. Uh, so, you know, again, if you go back to the sort of 08, uh, 2011 days, uh, National, you know, sort of getting 45, 46, 47% of the vote, but you also had ACT on, you know, mm. 0.8, 1.1, uh, you know, there or thereabouts. So, you know, the broad centre-right block uh, is, uh, is pretty good for us at this election, uh, very, very similar in some senses to the John Key years. Mm. Um, and, look, 
ultimately the New Zealand people have uh, delivered the election outcome for us and it's up to the politicians now to make it work in the new parliament. So obviously the big difference from the preliminary results on October 14th is that National will now require the support of both ACT and New Zealand First in order to command a majority in the House. So how much did the price of Winston Peters' support just increase? Well, let's uh, wait and see. Uh, we've been forging uh, relationships and having discussions and mm. um, conversations over the last uh, three weeks while we wait for the special votes to be counted. We, we fully anticipated this. I think I said to you on the morning after the election, yeah. um, you know, with a bit of a hangover, I said to you, uh, you know, we expect to lose one, possibly two seats. I had a, you know, a little hope that it might just be one, um, but unfortunately it was, it was two. But as I said to you, we fully anticipated and expected that we would yeah. that, that's what would happen and that is what has happened. The special votes tend to just lean left a bit. Um, and so we've just been working over the last few weeks on the assumption that we would lose votes and that uh, we would need both ACT and New Zealand First right. to govern. Uh, so as I say, we've been progressing those relationships and uh, now they just step up a notch in the, in the coming days. That, that being said though, do you accept that Winston Peters and New Zealand First have more leverage than they did on those preliminary results? Well, by definition, uh, you know, Mr Peters uh, and New Zealand First, um, that their votes are needed to uh, command confidence and supply of the House, yeah. which is what you need to form a government. On election night, um, at National and ACT didn't. Um, after the special votes are counted, uh, we do. So mm. it's just a statement of fact. There is not a single Pacifica person in any of those caucuses for the three parties likely to form the next government. What would be your message to Pacifica communities who feel that the next government is not necessarily going to reflect their communities? Yeah, I'm disappointed about that. Of course, um, Angie Nicholas uh, won Te Atatū uh, on the night, uh, and unfortunately Phil Twyford has taken that one back on the specials. She's an outstanding talent, ran a great campaign. Of course, we've got Agnes uh, Loheni, who's a, uh, a great Pacifica uh, candidate and former MP actually, she did uh, two years or so in the uh, last parliament or the parliament before the one just gone. Uh, so she's just on the cusp on the list as well. Um, so it's, it's disappointing from our point of view. Um, I think traditionally National has struggled with the Pacific community. There's been a very, very strong connection between the Pacifica community and the Labour Party. We are making real um, efforts there though. We've got the Pacific Blues and the National Party who are um, doing great work. Uh, we ran mm. some really good candidates in South Auckland uh, this time around, but I'm, I'm disappointed that we haven't got uh, representation in the new parliament. And look, that's a work in progress for National. We need to do more mm. to uh, make our caucus more diverse, uh, more broadly ex uh, reflect the uh, the makeup of modern New Zealand. And Christopher Luxon has made that really clear. And, and you know, mm. from my point of view, from a campaign point of view, I, I, I fully endorse that. Everyone knows that you love the game. You love elections. You love political theory. So give us your theory as to why so many of the Māori seats flipped. Uh, I don't know if I love the game so much. I, I, um, I'm in Parliament to try and make a difference. It's not about game playing for me. I, I want to try and change the direction of the country and make New Zealand more prosperous and aspirational. Um, but, you know, I obviously love politics and, and um, been around for a while. So, look, I, I, think, I think there'll be commentators will have their, their say on that. Um, What's your say? And I don't pretend to, to fully understand. Well, yeah. I don't pretend to fully understand what's going on there. But but Chris Hipkins did make the point yesterday that uh, Maori uh, Party voters um, have voted for the Labour Party with their party vote, but voted for Maori Party candidates for the most part mm. uh, with their electorate vote. Um, and so maybe there was an attempt, um, you know, on a collective basis to try and um, 
you know, have it both ways to, to some extent um, to try and help the Labour Party by giving them a party vote, but you know, also bringing in some uh, additional Maori Party MPs. Mm. But I think Labour Party MPs, people like Calvin Davis and Penny Hinaray, who have been around for a while, long long serving MPs, and also senior ministers, I think they'd be pretty frustrated by that mm. by that uh, sort of mentality, I suppose, because uh, I think they would, you know, I can't speak for them, but I'm pretty sure they would say, you know, they, they, they want those electorate votes as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, Willie Jackson, I suspect, would agree. So, look, I think, you know, that will all be part of the post-election analysis and the discussions within the parties around, it, around exactly what happened. And, look, we'll do a full review of our own election campaign yeah. as well. So what is the plan on Monday? Uh, well, we just we've got we've got the results now. We just have to uh, go and form that government. And uh, as I say, we've been uh, forging those relationships and discussions already over the last three weeks. And things will step up a notch uh, now. Uh, so we've been meeting with the ACT Party. Uh, we've been meeting with the New Zealand First Party. Uh, and those discussions and conversations will uh, continue. And uh, you know, when we're ready to form a government. Um, you will be one of the first to know, Jack. We'll, what are you uh, one of? We'll, you know, we'll have you on. Uh, <laughs> you know, you'll, well, you'll be on the you'll be on the press release list. You'll find out <laughs> like everyone else. <laughs> so, no, I'm, I'm interested in the nuts and bolts. Though Monday morning, do you all gather in, in a room? I mean, I, I appreciate that you might be doing negotiations one party at a time, but do you all gather in a room in Wellington. How does that work? Oh, look, I don't think it's worth getting into the, the nuts and bolts of it. Um, I don't think anyone's particularly interested about where we meet and who's there and I'm, who calls I'm, who I'm, and I'm interested. Stuff, so. I'm, I'm dead oh. interested. Oh, I know. And our I viewers know, are but, interested. But you know they are too. To you that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all I can say to you is that there are there are meetings happening. Um, <laughs> they're in largely boring rooms. Uh, there's nothing particularly exciting about it. Uh, the coffee's not. Coffee's okay. The sandwiches are all right. We're having the meetings. Okay. And um, and you know these. Throw, yeah, throw me one bone. Throw throw me throw me one bone. Give me one little one little flicker of detail. I'm not going to ask about the other parties, but can you tell me <laughs> who is in the room for national? Uh, look, I, I'm not going to get into the the details of it. I can say to you that I've I've been in the room um, over the last um, three weeks. Chris, Christopher Luxon, Nicola Willis. Um, uh, as well, and there's been a range of other people at various points over the last uh, few weeks as well, um, as, as we sit down and have those discussions and negotiations. But it's, it's exactly who you would expect um, to be in the room um, across the parties. OK, so you said after election night, when you had the hangover, not me, that you thought National would lose one or maybe two seats. You were right on that point, so I'm going to give pundit Chris Bishop another chance to put a stake in the ground. This time next week, Sunday morning next week, what are the chances we have a deal and a new government? Uh, <laughs> uh, look, I'm, I'm not a betting person. I'll leave that over to Kieran McInerney. I don't take punts. Um, let's just wait and see. That is National Campaign Manager Chris Bishop preparing to sit on the other side of the negotiations table as ACT leader David Seymour, who is with us this morning. Kelda, thank you for being with us. Are you prepared to put a stake in the ground there Good this time morning, next Jack. week? Will we have a deal and a government? Oh, well, I certainly hope so, because people voted for change to address significant challenges uh, that our whole country faces. Um, however, I'm one of three parts of a negotiation, and the outcome of that uh, is not determined by any one person. So, compared to election night, how has the leverage changed for negotiations for both ACT and New Zealand First? 
Well, I think if you look at the numbers, it's pretty clear that you had uh, a two-party government possible. Now you have a three-party government uh, necessary. Uh, and so that's going to require all three parties to come together with uh, a workable arrangement uh, to deliver, first of all, a stable government and from that mm. base, uh, the policy change that New Zealanders have collectively asked for. Does requiring New Zealand first diminish Act's leverage? Um, well, I guess it's, you know, this is almost like a maths test, Jack. I mean, logically, yes, um, and nationals for that matter, um, because you're dividing by three instead of two. So do you think if National had ruled out working with New Zealand First earlier in the campaign that we would have had a different election result? Um, well, I, I guess the, the country's already got a pretty good supply of uh, political commentators and, and pundits without me joining in. Uh, there'll always be people who will say, well, woulda, coulda, shoulda done this or that differently. Uh, I think what most people can see is that we now have an election result. The, the people have spoken and the voter uh, is king and queen in an election in a democracy like ours. Uh, what has to happen now is that those who have been elected to Parliament have to take that trust uh, that's been put in us very seriously uh, and start delivering what people really want, which is policy solutions. You're on a retreat with your caucus members today. So who's going to be in the room for ACT once negotiations begin in person tomorrow? Um, pretty similar to what we've had talking to the Nats over the last several weeks. Uh, we've had myself, our Deputy Brooke Van Belden, Nicole McKee, one of our MPs, uh, our Chief of Staff and a representative from our party board. So basically a, a parallel of what the National Party have done. Why do you think Te Party Māori picked up so many of the Māori seats? Um, well, I just heard your interview with Chris Bishop. I think possibly you got some uh, tactical voting behaviour. I'd also say that they've made a lot of promises. You know, they campaigned on an Aotearoa hō uh, and a hope that they could make a big difference. I think the challenge for them will be uh, to go beyond the TikTok and the theatrics and say, well, how do you actually get better housing, better education, jobs and economic opportunity? Uh, those are the real challenges. And uh, I think when it comes to meeting those challenges, uh, not just for one ethnic group, but actually for everybody who lives in New Zealand, uh, it's now incumbent on the incoming government uh, to have solutions and demonstrate measurable, substantial progress uh, before the voters check in on us uh, in another three years' time. Yeah, it's interesting that you note Te Party Māori's messaging during the election campaign because the party has really defined a lot of its messaging by what it says are tiriti-centric values. And I wonder, given the results in the Māori seats, given Te Party Māori has won six of those seats, what does that outcome say about the likely response among many Māori communities to a referendum on the treaty? Probably a lot less than you imagine. I mean, first of all, you've got to remember that over half of Māori don't actually enrol uh, on the Māori roll. Uh, and then if you look at the party vote nationwide, all of New Zealand, um, Te Pāti Māori got, I think, about 3%. I, I haven't looked closely at mm. their number. Um, but it is less than one in six uh, of those who identify uh, as Māori. So I think what the election has shown is that the particular brand of politics, the attitudes and the style that they bring, um, is very much a minority view uh, within Māoridom uh, and a tiny minority view uh, within New Zealand as a whole. Will ACT support a government without the guarantee of a referendum on the treaty? 
Well, again, that, that had been negotiating via media, which is something that I think everyone engaged in negotiations has promised not to do. Um, but what I can say is Act's position rather than other people's position, uh, and that is that the principles of the treaty are something that deserve uh, to be debated by mm. all New Zealanders, not just the courts, not just the Waitangi Tribunal, not just the public service, uh, but everybody who is affected by New Zealand's constitutional settings, and the principles being the lens through which we view the treaty uh, in the present day uh, are a critical part of that treaty setting, uh, that has or that constitutional setting, apologies, uh, which have been defined in, in behind closed doors, and they need to be defined uh, in open debates like you'd expect in a liberal democratic society. Thanks for your time this morning. Good luck for negotiations in the next few days. No worries. That is ACT Party Thank you leader, very much. David Seymour. After the break on Q&A on the current numbers, Te Pāti Māori has tripled the size of its caucus. So what does that result say about the role of Labour's Māori caucus? Willie Jackson is with us live. I'm feeling great. I'm feeling uh, well. I'm. I'm. We're here. I'm feeling like we have. Um, we've done what we set out to do, and particularly for Taitokero and Tamaki. So we're here and we're ready. So you might record Awadi's pebble in the shoe story. So now there's a bunch of pebbles. It's nearly <laughs> like a pebble bed. <laughs> that was new Te Party Māori MP Maria Meno Kapakengi speaking to us on Friday, just minutes after the release of the special votes, which of course showed the party picking up an additional two seats from the preliminary election night results. Willie Jackson is a senior member of Labour's Māori Caucus. Kia ora, good morning. Morena, morena, Jack. What happened in the Māori seats? Oh, well, first of all, congratulations to them. I think it's a fantastic result for them. Um, uh, and their strategy of concentrating on young people has uh, certainly come off in terms of the electorate votes. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I know these people, some of them are my friends and relations, unfortunately. And, uh, um, you know, you've got to celebrate for them. You know, at the same time, I'm disappointed for our crew. But... Uh, you know, we lost six electorate seats. We might we might get one of them back. But I think what a lot of people are missing is that we got 85, just under 85,000 votes in terms of the party vote, Jack. Uh, so that, that shows our people are, strate are strategic. So I congratulate Te Party Māori, but I congratulate our people too yeah, because I think they went for the two for one. You can't, you, you, you can't put it all down to strategic voting, right? Well, um, I, I think there's... Uh, there's a, there's a lot of that in what they've mm. done. I mean, because from when I was on the campaign, mm. people were saying, we're voting for you, we're just not voting for your candidate. And so many times we're going to support um, so many of the initiatives that uh, Labour has rolled out. I mean, people are proud of some of the stuff that we did. You know, Matariki, mata, increased funding for Matatini, $1 billion a year. Mm. I mean, you don't get... 85,000 votes mm. for your party vote if you haven't done a, a reasonably good so job. So what does it say, say, in Hauraki Waikato, for example? It says, well done to young Hana, and that Nanaya's done a... But uh, Nanaya's not on the list, right? No, so, no, no, I think... Well, so if you're having a strategic... If, if, you've got a strate right. if your theory is that everyone was strategic Well, not, e not everyone, ah, Jack, but, right. I, but I think if you look at the, if you look at the vote... You tell me where that's replicated in the mainstream uh, areas where, where if the electric uh, uh, MP wins the seat, 99 times out of 100 they win the party vote. That's not the case here. In every case, um, Te Pāti Māori uh, MP 
lost the party vote. And I think you've got to give our people a bit of credit in terms of your rights, in terms of Tainui and Hauraki. Uh, but I, I think some of our people might, might have thought, they might have thought Nanaia was on the list. They might have thought that. But it's very, very So they're nice. smart enough to be strategic in some in We're, some not, we're not everywhere. But, didn't, but, but in the Hauraki Waikato, they're not switched on enough to realise that, that well, Nanaia was on the list. I wouldn't say they weren't switched on enough, but, uh, but uh, I think that it's But, not, I mean, the strategic voting is, I, I, is, is, what, is, you, is you, quite you, clever, do you, right? Do you think it's strategic voting? Do you see what happened in the moment? I, I don't have a view on it at all. Well, You're the expert, huh? <laughs> but you don't see that type of voting replicated. You know, 85,000 votes for the party vote for yeah. Labour, 58,000 for Te Pāti Māori. Mm. I mean, it's unprecedented and unheard of. So we weren't decimated. I need you to talk to Mikey about this. It was, it was, she, it was she, interesting. We were a bit broken about it all. Are you not? Uh, well, of course we're disappointed. Yeah. Of course we're dis course we're disappointed. You know that there's some wonderful uh, elected MPs who, yeah. who lost their seats, but the Māori, the Māori caucus is not decimated. All those MPs are back Except because for of your wonderful Nanaia Mahuta. Apart from Nanaia. Yeah, one of the most experienced Māori MPs in New Zealand. Um, te Pāti Māori performed really strongly in the special vote count. So take Tektai Tokiro, for example. Mm, mm. They went from about 500 behind on the preliminary results to about 500 ahead on the final results. So that indicates that a lot of first-time voters yeah. enrolled and voted on the day. Why were Te Pāti Māori able to mobilise voters in that way and you perhaps weren't? Well, I think they brought all their resources to the table. I think that John Tamahiri was driving it from the back. Uh, he had all his organisations in uh, um, on top of it. Mm. Uh, and good on them. Good what, was on the, them. what was the first thing JT said to you after 2 o'clock on Friday? Uh, you owe me a couple of thousand dollars because we had a few bets. But he, he doesn't know how to count properly, JT. So we're actually all squares at the moment. But, hey, look, well done to him. You know, mm. I'm really proud of him, believe it or not, mm. because of the way they went from zero to where they are now. And, and I think the challenge is, and I think what our people are saying, uh, they're saying we want you two to work together. John's saying the same thing too. Look, we always have a few laughs, few jokes. Uh, but this is a Māori seats mm. are volatile. You know, we, we've had, you know, your good mate Winston, I'm looking forward to that return interview, Jack. We had Winston winning the Māori seats in 96, lost them all in 99. They can come back at the drop of a hat. So it's volatile. But what I think our people are saying is we want Te Pāti Māori and Labour Māori to work together. Why didn't Mika Whaiteri win? Well, you, you have to have a look at the case. I mean, our people have been strate strategic. I don't want to dump on Mika's whānau or anything now. I mean, uh, they, uh, they've been close to me through the years, and I think you need to ask uh, people down Ngāti Pro and Kahunganu, but, mm. you know, as strategic as they were across the different seats, people down that area are not silly. They made their own choices, and we've got a wonderful uh, candidate in terms of Kushla. Mm. I want to mihi to Mecca for her time, for her history. Uh, it's a shame we never got together to work things out. Maybe one day we will. If it's in the interest of... You still haven't, still haven't talked to her? No, <laughs> we still haven't talked to her. But anyway, one day... Not at all. One, one day... Oh, I think we said kia ora to each other once, and she did a waiata for me at, uh, at one of our hui. But look, hey, that, that'll... We'll work through that. I want to wish her all the best. You know, she served Labour well. She served our people well. Mm. It didn't work out for her. It was the wrong choice, in my view, from her and Te Pāti Māori. But, hey, they made a lot of other good choices and, and well done to them so and well done to her for, her for her time. If it is in the interest of Māori voters to strategically vote so that you bring in more MPs for Te Pāti Māori, you increase the size of Parliament in this case, mm. you have an overhang... Does that mean that in future elections it's not in the interests of Labour's Māori MPs to contest those electorates? Well, I mean, I think you were on to me about this last time, weren't you, Jack? You, I think you and Tamahiri were sort of coming up with some sort of strategy. No, no. I'm yeah, I'm sure you were because he, he was sounding very similar to you or you were sounding very similar to him. I think that the result demands that we look at 
the future together. I think you can't just say, oh, well, let's, let's not contest the seats, because otherwise you're dumping on but those what does that mean? What does is, what is looking at the future together well, mean? Well, let, let's seats? see. Well, here's the thing is, uh, how do we find it? How do we best utilise MMP, right? I think that's, that's the question, isn't yeah. it? Because here, here's the other side of it. If we had got 32% Labour... Yeah. To party Māori got six seats, you know the numbers, we would have been in the conversation to be go a government... Long, long way from 32%, though. 5%, 5%? Yeah. We're 5% away. What I'm saying is that, that if that's going to be the scenario in the future, will we be talking about an accommodation-type strategy? I, I, I'm, I'm very wary of that because I know how... But are you I mean, open to that is what you're I'm saying? I'm open to the conversation, but when you've got Penny Henare who loses the seat by four votes. Mm. It's not like those seats couldn't come back at the drop of a, a, drop of a hat. That one may well come back. Yeah. We may well win all the, all the seats back. But I think our people are saying, we want you to work together, and, and the result demands yeah. that you uh, you have courted or going forward. And JT and I have already talked about that anyway. So on election night, Materia Tude was really critical of your handling of her purple. Did you hear her comments? No, but some of my family did, and I think they emailed her, and they weren't particularly happy with her. So, <laughs> so, 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 so I, I, I hope I I'm summarising her correctly. That. No, that's all right. So, so basically, Basically, she said she felt that um, your handling of he pua pua had contributed to a situation where opposition politicians and voters were accusing the government of a secret Māori agenda, yeah. of a conspiracy of sorts. Yeah. Do you accept that criticism? No, I don't. I think she's talking nonsense. And uh, so, uh, and I and, and I want to have a have a cordial with her mm. one day because I, I I didn't realise she felt so strongly mm. about it because I saw her the next day. We were very friendly. She, I never saw anything. We had a cup of tea. But I, yeah, let me tell you, I didn't actually. I wasn't the person handling her poor poor. It was Nanaia Mahuta who handled it. Yeah. Did a good job. I, I, I sort of got the aftermath and had the sort of one-off comments that sent Winston, uh, you know, into ecstasy. You know? I just I just wonder, with the benefit of hindsight, when you reflect upon on the last two terms in government. Yeah. Did Labor's failure to articulate and advocate for its Māori policies mm. fuel the rise of other parties, do you think? I think we gave them some ammunition. I, I, you know, no, how, I, how do you think you gave them ammunition? I get, uh, by, by not being, a, a, you know, if I'm being honest, and I think even the Prime Minister said this, we probably, and he said that at a number of weeks, that we should have been... Uh, uh, a bit clearer earlier on about what you know the courted or around co-governance and and I, I certainly was so was Nanaya, uh, Jacinda was early on and I think what, what, what do you think being, being clearer well, just, just entails? So, just, well, just so people can understand where we're coming from, mm. that, that it's not a Maori takeover, that they're safe. And I think Kira, I, that was the point that everyone made. I, yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. like it was interesting to me when. The original proposal for Three, three Waters came out mm. and we had the governance structure mm. where Māori representatives made up 50% of those boards. It was really interesting going into interviews with senior Labour MPs and asking them questions and saying, uh, do, does the representation for... Is representation for Māori and non-Māori as a percentage of the population exactly even on these boards? And, and you would never get a straight answer. Mm -hmm. You'd always get ducking and yeah, weaving and yeah. people yeah, refusing no, no, but, to answer but, but and changing I think, the subject. I think your point about us being... Could we have been clearer? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think we've admitted that, and that's what... A, 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 but when Karen McAnulty and, and, and Chris Hipkins, our, the mm. Prime Minister at the uh, time, explained all of this... Didn't it quell everything? Didn't everything go quiet after that? Because most New Zealand people, most Pākehā mm. people, they don't mind those sort of setups. I know Seymour tries to make out it's uh, something coming out of South Africa. But nothing could be further. Was from that the too truth. late though? Uh, well, that was a, that was probably twelve months ago, wasn't it? 
Uh, yeah, may, no, a bit no, less than. Yeah, but, yeah. So, but, but off the top of my but head. No, I don't know if it, look. But uh, well, you we, know, was, we, was the opposition to three waters so great by yeah, that stage, it, it, and it filled so much opposition that actually it was very difficult to put yeah, the genie back well, in the bottle. Well, I'm, I'm glad they did what they did. Mm. I'm glad they they gave the response and the and the answer there. And in my view, it quelled everything. And in my view, despite mm. what Seymour keeps saying, I don't believe that co-governance and this Maori takeover played any part in terms of us losing the election. And if you go around everywhere, all good. Most Kiwis, they got no problems mm. in terms of partnership. they got no problems in terms of co-governance. Seymour and mm. them are just talking it up, and that's why he ended up with half the vote that he originally started out with. Well, how, do you, how many how, is 15%? How, how, how do you think negotiations are going to go? Well, it's going to be interesting, isn't it? You know, it's fascinating watching David and Seymour and... Uh, um, uh, Christopher uh, Luxon, you know, all of a sudden they're showing Winston all the greatest respect. I mean, you, you know, they, you talk, the, the way they ran him down, well, not, mm. not so much uh, the Prime Minister, the incoming Prime Minister, David Seymour, didn't want a, want a bar of him, didn't want to know mm. nothing about him. He had billboards. I had billboards, over, sadly, over my place, my apartment in Wellington. I used to walk home every night and see mm. Seymour talking about rubbishing, rubbishing Winston. <laughs> hasn't, it, hasn't it turned around? And who's the most powerful person in New Zealand politics at the moment? The person who you... Uh, uh, Got stuck into and was very disrespectful too on this uh, on this uh, program. You know, he, I don't know if he'll ever come what, back. You? <laughs> no, Winston. But I mean, after that interview with him, doesn't so it shows you, Jack. Doesn't matter how much how much you decimated uh, someone in these shows, they they seem to rise and go so, to, so, to bigger heights afterwards. Do you think Chris Hipkins will stay on as leader? Well, I hope he does. I hope he does. He uh, has your support. Well, I've you know I've been clear about that. Mm. I know I, I know I upset other party members, the, the, the odd individuals, mm. by being very clear. I was clear going into caucus. I'll be clear right now. I think he's, I think he could be a great opposition leader. Uh, you know he's got the fire. Mm. He's got the passion. You know you watch him and the way he cleaned old. Uh, um, the incoming Prime Minister up, Luxon up in the last debate. Brilliant. You, and I think he'll do that do in Do you the reckon House. anyone will challenge him? I don't know. I don't know. That's up to the court. You, you're trying to get me to break the rules again. Already, people already get irritated with me being so frank and clear about things. But if they do, good luck to them. But uh, Chippy's got my support. What about you? Are you mm. committed to you committed to staying for yeah, the well, full well, term? You know, again, I was... I think I was clear that I was probably looking to, to leave um, after the election, but I've been sort of convinced by a number of people close to me and within the party to to stay around and and I want to stay because uh, I want to stay because I'm nervous about my, what might be coming. You know, in terms of this nonsensical mm. treaty referendum. Let me tell you now, Jack, if they try and push that through, you know, uh, you'll, it'll be eight, uh, 81 Springbok tour um, uh, civil unrest like you know, times five, times ten. Violence? Uh, uh, well, I hope not. One hopes not, but I've already heard. Uh, one, that's not something that Māori uh, have advocated. It's certainly something that I'm not advocating, but I don't think we'd be able to manage it or control it when, when I hear from our people, come on, surely they're not going to do that after we used the system, after we went through the courts, after Māori mortgaged homes and their lives in terms of utilising uh, the, the, the system, the English system, uh, to and, and, and got victories, and now all of a sudden they're going to change the rules. I don't think we'd be able to manage it in this country, and I hope that Mr Luxon and Winston show, show a bit of common sense over this. Thank you for your time. Kilda. We appreciate Kilda. it. Willie Jackson. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it on my. These are our main platforms. You can email us, you can find us on X or Facebook. After the break, what will it take for Palestinians to achieve self-determination? We look at the broader Palestinian struggle and meet the Maori leader with an extraordinary connection.
Hokimai. As the conflict in Gaza enters its fifth week, this morning we want to bring you the perspective of a New Zealander with a unique connection to the region. In the early 2000s, Kiwi Chris Tooley was awarded the prestigious Bill Gates Scholarship to Cambridge University to study self-determination movements. From considering self-determination through a Māori lens, Chris ended up focusing on Palestine. He travelled through the Middle East and worked alongside prominent Palestinian leaders at the time to develop a model for Palestinian self-determination. Today, Chris is the CEO of health provider Te Puna Ora o Matatua. I visited him in Whakatane this week and began by asking what it's been like watching the conflict of the last few weeks. Look, it's pretty horrific um, watching the scenes uh, play out. Um, you know, it's pretty dire for um, civilians on both sides, um, in particular Palestinians, um, you know, watching the numbers increase. Um, unfortunately, um, it's a bit of deja vu. Um, we've been here time and time again, um, you know, so many times, um, you know, these kinds of, you know, escalations have increased, um, you know, you think of, um, you know, Hamas um, launching the rockets, you know, before it was Islamic Jihad, before it was Alaska Brigade, so forth, and then, you know, when you think on the side of, you know, Palestinians, you know, Israelis have gone into Gaza, they have gone into the West Bank before, you know, you're seeing asymmetrical power, you know, play out. You know, you really have to wonder, you know, you know, what is the end game? You know, where is this going? Um, you know, what, what, what happens next? Yeah. I want to hear about your work around Palestinian self-determination, but I think it might be helpful for viewers if you can tell us a little bit about your own story. How did you end up at Cambridge? <laughs> In the nicest possible way. Well, <laughs> You know, I've always been fascinated with the concept of self-determination. And, and so, you know, in my master's at, at Auckland University, um, I was always looking at self-determination from, you know, te ao Māori point of view, te rangatira, you know, how can we achieve it? Um, what does it mean to achieve it? And, and how do you kind of build steps or processes towards, you know, reaching that goal? And, you know, after I completed, um, you know, that piece of work, you know, I certainly became interested in, in the international arena because self-determination is very much um, an international concept. It's a Western concept. And often um, groups that are struggling for self-determination are not Western. And so you're always getting this kind of cultural tension. So I really wanted to map what, what self-determination was and, and so when I was looking um, overseas and really wanting to have some kind of you know, new knowledge to bring back home, um, you know, I learnt that um, during the Enlightenment project prior to the um, self-determination becoming political, um, there was a lot of activity in and around Cambridge. So in the context of the Palestinian movement, is self-determination statehood a two-state solution? Palestine has a very long history. If we take a line in the sand and just look at modern Palestine history, you know, the starting point would have to be around, you know, 1947 when you think of, you know, post-UN development. Up until then, um, the whole of Israel-Palestine had been occupied by Palestinians. And, and so, um, you know, there was very much a, a carve-up of, of all the different empires um, after World War I and World War II, when we think about Austro-Hungarian Empire, when we think about Ottoman Empire, you know, self-determination was used as a tool by the Americans, by the French, by the British to really carve up these countries in relation to their own interests. And so, you know, th there is some um, connection uh, by Palestinians back um, to that particular time. But, you know, look, you fast forward, 
um, a couple of decades, and, and especially um, you know within nowadays, a lot of the Palestinian you know self determination is actually based on you know uh, two state solution, particularly around um, the 1967 borders, right? The 1967 borders of what we call the Green Line. So you travel from New Zealand to Cambridge, you study self determination, you find yourself in the Middle East developing a theoretical model for Palestinian self-determination. You travel through Syria, Lebanon, the West Bank, Gaza. What was your impression of the region during that experience? You know, when you do go to, um, you know, the place itself, you find that it's quite compressed. Um, you know, it's, it's highly dense. There's a lot of people. Um, you know, the infrastructure is, is not the best. Um, you know, they're living off, you know, very tough conditions. They have an extraordinary humour, but there is a real kind of, um, you know, sense that, you know, they have lost something and, and um, you know, it's, it's almost um, impossible. You know, they can't see a way forward. The thing about the Palestinian population is that they're so fragmented, right? You know, they're in different you know, parts of the Middle East that are in different parts of Palestine and, and not being able to make those connections, not being able to talk to each other is, you know, quite overwhelming. And even just, you know, getting around on a day-to-day -day basis when you're going through all the different checkpoints, you've got to be able to, you know, time your your movement so you can get back to where you need to be in time and, and so forth. So it's, it's tough because the, um, there is no national unity, right? There's no national consciousness, you know, and, and so, you know, they're really looking forward to a, a vision, you know, right? And, and this is the Palestinian, um, you know, whānau or, or civilians on the ground, and, and unfortunately, you know, leadership hasn't been able to deliver that for them. Um, and so, you know, there's a real opportunity there. Um, you know, for leadership to come through and really mobilise that, that consciousness. Why is that? Why is the Palestinian movement, if I can deem it in those terms, so fragmented? Look, it's, um, you've got so many different moving parts, and, and if we just simply start with, um, you know, location, right? You, you have, obviously, Palestinians in Gaza, right, that have leadership, um, with, with Hamas and, and have a very strong Islamic um, you know, uh, focus on that. And then you have West Bank, which is uh, controlled by um, Palestinian Authority, um, and they come from more of a Sunni uh, background rather than a Shia background of, of Hamas. But you've got the leadership of the kind of PA, um, Palestinian Authority, that's, um, you know, they're getting into their 90s now, completely disengaged from, you know, people on the ground. And it's more of a hangover from, you know, PLO days. And then you think about the refugees, you know, refugees in Syria, Lebanon, um, Jordan, you know, and you think of the Syrian war, you know, and the, the migration that had to occur, right, with all the different camps moving around. And so, you know, and there's also a, a, a population with Israel itself. I mean, 20% of the Israeli population is Arab or Palestine. And so they're kind of trapped, right, within the, the, the borders of, of Israel. And so the, one of the main problems for um, Palestine is that they haven't been able to, or haven't had the right to assemble. Haven't had the right to assemble. They simply can't come together and, you know, collectively discuss or talk to one another because they're being kept in these, 
um, silos, these prisons, they've been controlled in relation to their movement, their time, and they simply haven't been able to have that first step forward in relation to how one would want to um, assert self-determination. When you think about Palestinian self-determination and the struggles of the Palestinian movement, what role does Israel play? Well, you know, that's, I mean, you know, that's, that's the question, isn't it? When we see people, you know, calling for ceasefire, that's simply not enough. You know, ceasefire goes back to a status quo, right, in which um, Palestinians, right, um, are still having their land appropriated through, you know, Israeli settlements, are still confined in relation to movement. Um, prisoners, um, detainees, they don't have ability to control water, for example. They don't have the ability to control supply chains or, or whatever. And so, you know, this is status quo. You simply have to break the binary, right? We, we cannot rely on Palestinians and Israel, you know, working it through. And how do you do that? Well, you need to bring in, you know, a third party. The UN has a particular role. Right, in relation to the UN Security Council mandate that this is their role when it comes in to brokering peace. And time and time again, you know, there have been resolutions that have come up before the UN Security Council that have been vetoed time and time again. And it's usually by the US. And, and you know, I just think back to when, you know, Gaza was last invaded, where there was a UN Security Council resolution to have a UN peacekeeping force to go into Gaza just to observe Right, just to observe, um, and that was vetoed. And, and so, you know, even though we've got those kind of geopolitics at play, we still have to, um, you know, push forward the idea that the binary needs to be broken and that there needs to be international, um, you know, involvement, right, in, in you know, brokering um, peace. And, and over time, you know, we can actually move towards, you know, um, you know, Palestinians both in Gaza and West Bank actually coming together, okay, and actually having a discussion about, you know, the way forward. The issue with um, Hamas is that they are extremists, they are terrorists, right? They have a whakapapa which goes back to Hezbollah, which goes back to Iran. You know, their arrival in Gaza was one of opportunity anyway, because when um, Yasser Arafat was expelled, right? It left a big power vacuum within Gaza and that was filled. And Palestinians on the ground um, have actually accepted that when there is no political solution or when there's no end game in place, Islamic uh, fundamentalists pretty much have more influence in that particular environment. So if we're able to get into um, West Bank and get into Gaza and you know, offer the ability for dialogue, for Palestinians to dialogue, to get some kind of national um, unity, get national consciousness, and actually think about building, you know, different leadership structures, then, you know, that's the way forward. What role should violence play when it comes to pursuing self-determination? You know, violence can never be justified, you know, regardless of what side you're on. You know, violence brings um, a dehumanism, you know, to the to the conflict, um, and you know, it never it never wins. When you work through concepts of self determination, you know, you actually have to work through concepts of power at the same time. And so, even though we have you know what we call binary power, 
right, on the ground, and binary power is what we think in relation to settlements, in relation to wars, in relation to tanks, in relation to rockets being fired by Hamas. You know, that's binary power, but that binary power is um, controlled um, in relation to wider, you know, what we call hegemonic or, you know, discursive power, right? And so, you know, what allows, um, you know, in this, in this case, um, Israel, you know, to continue with the settlements? What allows Israel the right of preemption? What allows Israel the right of collective responsibility? What allows Israel the right of defense, right? Is um, kind of sustained by this hegemonic discourse. Um, and, and so. Can you give me an example on that for people who don't know what a hege hegemonic discourse means? You mean the way in which the dispute if we can frame it that way, is framed, right? Yeah, it's the narrative, right? And, and, you know, when it comes to hegemony, you know, this is the realm of colonisation. This is the realm of racism. This is the realm in which all that kind of terrorism um, discourse is, is deployed, OK? And, you know, within this realm, judgments are being made around what it is to be human, what it is to be normal, what it is to, you know, argue, organise yourself in a, in a political way. What is the role of other Arab nations in, in this conflict? Yeah, so the Arab League in particular has a huge role to play. You know, they need to play a stronger role. The problem is, is that, again, again you get the, the Sunni-Shiite split across the Arab world, especially when you've got Hamas, Hezbollah and Iran, you know, sort of you know, working that particular angle, whereas, um, you know, most of the other Arab states, particularly within the Arab League, take a Sunni, a Sunni. Yeah, point of end, you know. You know, if Palestinian wants to achieve self-determination, there needs to be a stronger role for the Arab League, especially in, um, you know, providing a counterfactual against the US position all the time, because at the moment, the US is um, kind of the sole third party in relation to overseeing this particular conflict. And the longer that continues without any other participation from the Arab League, it simply isn't going to work. Do you have any sense of hope today that the cause of Palestinians and perhaps self-determination or statehood can be advanced? Um, it's pretty hard to see a way through at the moment. Um, you know, you, you think of the... Uh, um, incursions going through into Gaza right now and, and all the Palestinians having to flee um, to the Egyptian border. You know, what happens after that? You know, let's play that out and, and just assume that, you know, Hamas is, um, you know, removed from Gaza, um, which would be pretty hard, you know, because, you know, the leadership from Hamas is not even based in Gaza, it's based in other Arab countries and are resourced, again, from, from Iran. And so, you know, what's the end game there when you think of, you know, the Western uh, West Bank, for example? You know, what's the end game there in relation to changing the leadership? You know, you, amongst the, you know, the population of Palestine is just getting up to six million. You know, you've got six million refugees also wanting to come back into the, the country as well. And so that's why, you know, you need an international community. That's why you need an international invention, intervention to actually come in, right, and, and start working with those people on the ground if self-determination is ever going to be achieved. When you think about status quo, you know, um, the Israeli government is rewarded 
you know, for continuing to, you know, go beyond, right, the 1967 borders with their settlements. You know, no one is intervening to stop them. No one is stopping, you know, them, you know, pursue, you know, resources when it comes to water or land. There's a kind of reward system by people not acting in this particular situation and something needs to be needs to be changed and something needs to be broken up and, and only you know the international community can do that. That's Chris Tooley. Stay with us. After the break, I ask him to turn his attention to Maori self-determination. Kara, welcome back. After his experience overseas, Chris Tooley was a senior advisor to Tar Peter Sharples during his time in Parliament. So I asked Chris to consider what the election campaign and results mean for Māori self-determination in Tino Rangatiratanga. Over the last two governments, there's been you know good progress made um, in relation to you know advancing you know Māori rights. Um, but however, when you think of you know just the current election and, and you think of you know some of the positions around you know co-governance, when you think about you know treaty clauses, when you think about treaty referendum, you know it looks like you know it's going to be um, a pretty rough um, next three years. Um, especially you know being here at Tapuna Water, obviously the Maori Health Authority is is you know a hot topic um, for us because. You know, it has achieved so much um, in such a small amount of time for, you know, Māori health across, um, you know, the motu. So has it? You, that's your impression? Yeah, the argument is, is that form and function, right? And, and so, you know, you've got National and ACT simply believing that function will provide time and time again um, when it comes to, you know, Māori self-determination in particular, form and function is required. And so... Yes, when you, when you get the Māori Health Authority, everyone's looking at different contracts that are rolling out, but sitting in behind all those contracts, it's a massive amount of work when it comes to co-design. It's a massive amount of work when it comes to involving iwi and Māori providers in relation to you know, creating that infrastructure that actually delivers that contracts because, you know, that's, you know, really super important that we, we have the infrastructure combined with um, you know, the, the service delivery component. You know, when, when Māori contracts were being delivered out of the, um, the Ministry of Health, you know, for decades, we didn't solve inequality, right? We didn't solve um, the disproportionate, you know, um, experiences by Māori and, and all the health outcomes that Māori experience. And, and it seems, you know, that we might be returning, you know, to that particular status quo. So in practical terms, what does Tino Rangatiratanga actually mean? In practical terms, well, all that's been set out by Mataki Mai in relation to the report that was developed by uh, Moana Jackson. And, and so, you know, Rangatiratanga um, is not co-governance, right? It's not in relation to treaty clauses that, that sit within, you know, government legislation. You know, that resides with Māori and Māori alone. You know, just seeing where other self-determination struggles are, um, you know, we're quite well placed. Māori consciousness has always been strong, you know, and that's the backbone of, you know, rangatiratanga, you know, having that unity of consciousness, having that national consciousness, um, being able to, yeah, sure, we have our, there are differences, you know, but um, ultimately, you know, everybody's able to move, 
you know, in the same direction um, as a, you know, a collective, you know, and that's the most important part, you know. Um, and so when you think about the concept of power and you think about the concept of, you know, transformation, what tends to happen is, is things tend to happen in 20 to 25 year cycles. Um, and so when you think of, you know, the journey of Māoridom, you know, it started with kōhanga, you know, that, that symbolises, you know, the, the first kind of, um, you know, transformative phase. Currently, you know, we're kind of sitting within the second, you know, phase of, of that particular um, journey and, and, you know, power dynamics have changed, you know, and, and the actors have changed and so, during this time, you're able to revisit, you know, um, existing spaces and, and look at how we might consolidate them, how we might change them. And I guess, you know, when we think of examples in perhaps Te Matawai might be a good example of this, you know, new, um, you know, entity that, you know, brought together all the different te reo entities into one and now it's providing a more, you know, united and consolidated strategy going forward, right, in, in that particular space. Also in this particular um, phase, you're starting to see um, a lot of mātauranga um, starting to be developed. Um, you, know, you think of maramataka, uh, matariki, you think of te matatini, you think of the growth of te reo. You know, all these different things um, are based on a resurgence of, you know, mātauranga. And that is normally, um, you know, when you look at different you know, struggles around the world, that this is very much within, within the second phase. Going forward, you know, what's, what's the next phase? Well, you know, the next phase um, will be um, at some point, you know, we will reach a critical mass, a critical mass of fluent, uh, fluent speakers, a critical mass of those that understand mātauranga and tikanga Māori, and I'm just talking within Māoridom, and so this critical mass um, sort of creates um, a kind of a recodification of, you know, existing spaces, you know, because simply, you know, knowledge structures have changed, um, you know, internal power dynamics have changed, and so, you know, that'll be, you know, perhaps the next, you know, decade, you know, going forward. And ultimately, at some point, we will land, you know, at the, the fourth and, and um, you know, the, I won't say last, because you never know. But the fourth one is where you start to get constitutional change, you know, and, and so, again, you know, we've all, you know, when you think of Moana Jackson already laying the groundwork with, you know, Mataki Mai, when you think of, you know, people like, you know, Aroha Mead or Claire Charters, you know, laying the groundwork with He Pua in relation to implementing the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and the action plan that's required for that. And so, you know, none of these, phases, um, you know, are linear. They don't just, you know, happen one after another. They, you know, they happen at multiple times. They happen, you know, together. Um, they fold, they overlap, but, in, you know, that's the general direction of travel when it comes to rangatiratanga. And so, you know, if you think about that journey, then it kind of puts into perspective, you know, the concept of all the debate around co-governance, if you know what I mean. It, it's quite small and insignificant in relation to the, the whole journey of rangatiratanga for Māori. That is Chris Tully, the CEO of Te Puna Ora o Mātātua. Hey Aukonai, we're back after the break.
Cool, Mutu, that is Q&A for this week from the Q&A team. Thank you for watching. Hey, Teera Wiki, we will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.